Good morning. This morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, and verses 14 through 25. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officials, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Now therefore, Revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us along all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and we will obey him. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statutes and ordinances for them at Shechem. The New Testament lesson comes from the epistle that we know as 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 6 to 19. Let us listen for God's word. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains." But as for you, man of God, shun all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, 
faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you were made. The good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which you will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, and thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. O holy God, by your grace, may your holy word be heard through these human words. May it take root in our hearts and bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a surprisingly warm day just before Thanksgiving, much like the November days we were enjoying until a couple of days ago. The family was coming for a visit, and the father and husband decided it was time to go up on the roof before they came and check some shingles that looked like they may have blown off in a storm that had hit just the week before. So he went on the roof, but being a very careful engineer type of person, he wanted to tie himself in because the pitch of the roof was pretty steep. So he tied a rope and he threw it over the roof and called his son to grab the other end and to tie it in. Being a good scout, that son was very good at tying knots and so he very securely tied the rope to the bumper of the car. Inside, the mother was cooking, preparing for the Thanksgiving dinner when she realized she was missing one of the key ingredients for her cherry pie, which was everyone's favorite. So she made a mad dash out, got in the car, and started to head off to the grocery store before she saw her teenage son wide-eyed with his hands waving wildly. And she came to a stop, but not before her husband left the roof a little bit faster than he had planned on doing. After the tears and after the finger pointing, once they were at the hospital, they started to turn to jokes and laughter. But perhaps the wisest word was said by the nurse who looked in on him and said to him, next time you're counting on a rope, perhaps you better be sure it's tied to something that doesn't move. In this closing chapter of the letter we call 1 Timothy, Timothy is urged to remind his church about the danger of tying their ropes onto something as insecure as a moving car bumper. In this case, it is money. In doing so, 1 Timothy is consistent with the gospel because 
If you count it up, the topic that Jesus talked about more than any other, other than the kingdom of God, the topic he talked about more than any other was money and possessions. Money, Timothy is reminded, is an unreliable anchor that only gives us an illusion of security in our lives, can add to our anxiety, erodes our faith in God, and numbs us to the neighbors whom we are called to love as ourselves. This passage in chapter 6 is filled with quotable verses, some of which are well enough known to be quoted by people who've never opened a Bible. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Do good. Be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Take hold of the life that really is life. The early church leader John Chrysostom once said that the essence of sin is confusing means and ends. That the essence of sin is confusing ends and means. It's especially true for money. Money is a good means, but it is a terrible end or goal. We may think that having more money is the key to greater security and happiness, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Money only offers an illusion of security. Money, after all, cannot buy health nor real love. It cannot preserve us from sorrow, and it certainly can't prevent death. The problem with money is that more often than not, the more we have, the more we want. How often have we found ourselves thinking, if I just got that job, if I just got that pay raise, then we'll be in a good place, then we'll be happy. Only that when you get that job or when you get that pay raise, suddenly there are other things that you need now. A study of lottery winners showed that after six months, their level of happiness was about the same it was before they won the lottery. The bubble of elation was pierced by new definitions of what they really needed and new concerns about managing that money as more people made demands on them for it. When we rely on money for our security and peace, then we're just like that man on the roof. As wise people have observed through the centuries, true contentment lies not in having more but in needing less. True contentment, Timothy reminds us, flows from placing our trust not in ourselves or our employer or in our investment fund, but in the unshakable God who made us and loves us and as we just said to Cece, will never stop loving us. Relying on money, trusting our wealth, making Making money our goal in life puts blinders on us, keeps us from fully seeing God's presence and power in our lives because we're focused on ourselves and our self-reliance. But money can also obscure our vision of our neighbors and others. Neighbor numbness is how one Christian ethicist has put it. Not necessarily because of any intentional callousness, but because there's so little time to attend to anything or anyone else except ourselves. We look in the wrong places when we focus on money because we focus on those who have more. 
instead of on those who have less. We are focused more on the envy we have for what we don't have rather than the gratitude for what we do have and what we can share with others. Focusing on money cannot help but make us a little more self-centered, a little more selfish, or sometimes a lot more. In his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, the Nobel Prize winning Princeton professor Daniel Kahneman notes how experimenters have primed people with ideas about money, either leading a discussion about money or simply showing them images of money. And what they do then is they do an experiment and they, they sort of compare these people to those who were not exposed to those ideas or conversations or images of money. And this is a startling thing. Those who were primed about money and the subsequent experiment showed themselves to be significantly more selfish and less likely to help others. You know, it's often assumed that the more you have, the more you give, and that's certainly true in dollar amounts. But in terms of percentages, in fact, studies show that it's exactly the opposite. And a study over time that looked at family giving in 1916, 1933, 1955, and in this case, the last year was 1993, the year where people gave the highest percentage of their income was 1933 in the midst of the Great Depression. As the singer Ray Charles observed from his own life experience going from great poverty to great wealth, affluence separates people, poverty knits them together. Self-reliance, like money, is not a bad thing until it causes us to trust less in God and care less about others. Money makes a lousy end or goal, but it can be a very good means, a means to express our gratitude to God, our trust to God, and our love for God and our neighbor. For it is God who gives us all good things, 1 Timothy reminds us, and in Jesus Christ, as Don and Sarah mentioned, we're reminded of the sacrifice that God makes out of love for us. In light of all the blessings that we receive, how can we not respond with gratitude? In light of God's generous love revealed in Jesus Christ, how can we not be generous in our giving of our time, of our love, of our money? 1 Timothy instructs us to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. What does it mean to be rich? Not in terms of money or bank accounts or the stuff we have in our homes or the cars we drive, but in the intangibles of life that really count and really last, the things that we're most likely to give thanks for next week at Thanksgiving. The theologian Miroslav Volv answered the question this way, the truly rich person surveys the past with gratitude for what he has received, not with annoyance about what hasn't been achieved or how little has been given. The rich person lives in the present with contentment, focusing not on what they want, but what they need. 
And the truly rich person looks toward the future with trust. She gives rather than holding things back in fear of coming out too short because she believes God's promise that God will take care of it. Do you want to have a rich life? A life marked by commitment and joy, by purpose and peace. Then gratitude and trust and generosity are the key to taking hold of the life that really is life. First Timothy understands that money is important. The letter acknowledges our need for food and clothing and the basics of life. One of the gifts that we have offered to each of our daughters as they finished school was a session with a financial planner. We wanted them to have help with how to manage their daily expenses and to save for the future. But we wanted that financial planner to be a person of faith who treated tithing and giving as an equally essential part of any good financial plan. Because long before they were ready to meet with a financial planner, we tried to teach them that giving is intended to be a regular part of our lives, both in terms of time and money. So when they received their allowances, they understood that a portion of it would go into the offering. And when they professed their faith in front of this sanctuary as part of the confirmation class, they then filled out their own pledge cards. They might not know what they would make in their summer jobs, but they could put something down. And if they made less and they had less to give, we could assure them that no one was going to come out from the church to collect. The amount they could give, of course, was very small, but that didn't matter. What mattered was that they learned to make giving a regular part of their lives. We did it not just to instill another rule or duty in their lives. As children of preachers, they get a lot of that. Nor was it to raise money for a church budget. No, we did it because we truly believe that gratitude and generosity are the keys to a more contented life, a better life, a life of more trust and less anxiety, a life of more contentment and less envy, a life of more purpose and joy and less resentment and despair. What are these? They're not a handcuff, but they are a statement of intention. Not a way to impress others. The only people who are going to see this are the people that keep the financial records for tax purposes. Not an onerous duty, but really a gift. These cards are meant to be a gift for each one of us where we take inventory of our blessings and find a way to express our gratitude, our trust, and our desire to make giving a regular part of our lives on a weekly basis monthly part. Because see, this is the strange math of the kingdom of God. It is in giving that we receive. It is in sharing with others that we have more of the things in life that really matter. No matter what age we are, no matter what income bracket we find ourselves in. A few years ago, the Reverend Donna Bridgewater was an associate pastor of a Methodist church. And somehow she got the responsibility for helping to raise the money for a new roof. 
One day in the midst of her fundraising efforts, a lawyer called to say that someone had just left a bequest to the church in the amount of $56,000. That same day, a little bit later, a couple called and confirmed that they wanted to make a pledge for the roof of $35,000. Still on that same day, someone came by the church and dropped off a check for $100. Just as the church was ready to close for the day, she heard the sound of children coming in the outside door, and a woman asked, is that lady preacher in? Her secretary buzzed and told her there was someone to see her, and so the minister said, send them in. She recognized them immediately as the family she had helped with $10 from the discretionary fund. The mother was in her mid-30s, was wearing polyester pants that really didn't fit, tennis shoes with no laces, and a dirty t-shirt. Her three children were aged one to five, all were shoeless. Certain they needed more help, Reverend Bridgewater asked how they were doing. They were doing fine, the woman said, as she dug in her pocket for something. She told how she was now getting food assistance, but that she had used the $10 the minister had given her to go out and get gas to find a job, and she, in fact, had found a job and would soon be starting it. What's more, her grandmother had come to live with them and was taking care of the children so that she would be freed up to go to work. Then she laid $12 on the minister's desk and said, I want to thank you for helping me when I really needed I didn't have any other place to go. Reverend Bridgewater told her it was only $10 that they had given, and the church doesn't charge interest or even expect repayment. The woman smiled as she shifted the baby from one hip to the other, the minister recalls, and she said to her, Oh, the $10 is to pay you back, the others for God. He helped me out when I needed it, and I want to thank him. And then she said to her children, Come on, kids, we've got to go get Granny. When it was reported to the governing board that on one day the church had received $91,112, people chuckled about the $12, that the total wasn't rounded off. But not the minister. She could only smile with joy. And I feel, deep down in my heart, that God was smiling too. Friends, whether you are capable of giving 56,000, 35,000, 100, or 12 dollars, do good. Be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, so that you may take hold of the life that really is life.